to Just Enough Doctorate to Perform, the podcast where science meets spontaneous improvised comedy. And today we have a very special guest joining us on the podcast. Our guest is the first professor we've had on the show, the first guest to have been awarded an OBE, and recently the first person to ever receive the Stephen Hawking Award for Science Communication. It's Professor Jim Al-Khalili. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Yes, pleased to be here. (laughs) Now, Jim, you're probably best known for your extensive work as a science communicator with numerous BBC Science programmes, your regular radio series Life Scientific, and I'm sure being the third ever guest on this podcast is now rising rapidly towards the top of your list of achievements. Um, But whilst you're still foremost a scientist, what sets you on your path to becoming a leading public science communicator? Uh, Serendipity, to use a long word, right at the very start of the interview. Um, It wasn't... (laughs) Well, I don't mess around. It wasn't something I planned. I'd always had the dream to be an academic and go through the university system, um, do my research, do teaching, and it just happened by accident. I I look back on my career and think, well, if I hadn't done this, I wouldn't have met so-and-so. If I hadn't done that, it wouldn't have led to something else, and... Gradually, you know, I, I got to the point where now I'm, I, I spend 50% of my time as a public scientist, broadcasting and writing and so on. So being good at one thing and an escalation of being good at a number of things have led to this... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I never thought of myself as being good as a communicator. Mm-hmm. I guess most of my circle of friends were not scientists, so I was very used to try and explain difficult concepts okay. in plain language. And I found I enjoyed getting across some of these ideas. I always say, you know, if I find out something interesting about the world, how it works, yeah. why would I not want to shout about it and tell everyone else? And I think it's, it's born from that need, plus the need to show off a bit. <laughs> Look at me. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you've made plenty of TV programmes, but when making TV programmes, things don't always go according to plan. And I imagine that the addition of doing things like complex science experiments must add to the risk of that. Um, so, do you have any fond memories of outtakes or unforeseen issues from any of your media work? Well, I mean, there's always, when you're doing TV programmes, there's always multiple takes. Um, one of the first documentaries I made called Atom, a three part series for the BBC, uh, and I had this really long opening scene um, where we, we had a, a jib, which is a camera on a, yeah. on, a, on a crane, and it was up sort of about 40 feet, and we, we were filming this in the, in the Swiss Alps. And we had one day there, we'd, we'd even hired a helicopter, so the cameraman was going to be up in on the helicopter filming me doing... I was going to do a the Sound of Music, sort of, uh, you know... Uh, Julie Andrews twirling <laughs> around on top of the hills. Who'd have uh, thought that would be physics? <laughs> well, there you go. I, I look, it looked ridiculous, because I was... While doing this spinning around, the helicopter was hovering above me and almost blowing me off the top of this mountain, so it was very uncomfortable. Oh, wow. Um, but we, it then started pouring with rain and I had this really long opening piece to camera to do. Many, many hours to practice it. And then we had a window of about half an hour when, when the sun came out. And I remember doing this whole intricate scene with this, the camera zooming in down on me as I walked up the hill. And I got 99% through this piece. Yep. And then just completely, my mind just went bleh. Oh, I know. Uh, and, and I could see the disappointment on my oh, director's okay. face and the cameraman's face. And I thought... This is not for me. It was only after I realised I could have done that in multiple little chunks oh. rather than a two-minute dialogue. So um, I, I learned very quickly wow. that uh, 
just take it easy and uh, try and squeeze it in when, when you can. I see. Not even Julie Andrews could save you at that point. No, no. I, oh, I'm disappointed. The Julie Andrews spinning around made it into the outtakes, uh, okay. which I like to show when I give talks about yeah. putting science on TV. I like to show it to kids. And, and, you know, and then the other semen in the Mojave Desert, when a fly insisted on trying to enter either my nose or my mouth when I was trying to give this um, piece wow. of camera. So that was about 20 takes. That was almost Mike Mosley level of number of takes. <laughs> which uh, who, He's the man who holds the record, apparently. Oh, really? Well, <laughs> who would have thought there'd be starstruck flyers in the desert? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and this is the first time you've ever done improv with us today, I believe. It is indeed, yep. Okay, well, we're very excited to have you participating. Thank you for being here, Jim. Well, joining me on the podcast are my two regular guests, who are frankly never too far from an outtake. We have our science expert, Dr. Radu Spuria, and improviser, Johnny Bryars, who, like myself, is a member of improv group Left Foot First. Welcome, Johnny and Radu. Hello. Now, Radu, you're a man who occasionally dips his toe in the world of science communications. So the same question to you. Do you have any memorable outtakes? No, I can tell you I'm, I'm quite close to beating Michael Mosley into the number of, of, <laughs> of takes for anything. Um, a, a few years ago, we've done um, a little video in the ATI about plastic electronics, and it ended up being about four minutes, and it took about 14 hours to film. Oh, I know. Uh, mainly because um, I couldn't get my line straight. And the worst part, I mean, the, the fun part, but the worst part was where we had to film uh, with the dolly on... Oh, yes. Um, on a, on a corridor, and I was speaking and walking, and I was getting it wrong every single time. The problem is that um, we used as a dolly one of these uh, goods freight kind of pull, whatever they're called. That's about 100 kilos in <laughs> itself, and we had someone on it with a microphone and the camera. And someone was pulling this at speed on the corridor, and we did take about 20 takes. And um, I'm not very, uh, or that person's not very fond of me uh, uh, for that very reason, but he's in very good shape. See, well, you alluded to the ATI there, which stands for the Advanced Technology Institute. That and is right. Even they do not have an answer for filming requirements. Not yet. <laughs> We're working on it. Watch this space. Well, Johnny, uh, we talked about outtakes, but in improvisation, you can't really have an outtake, at least in the traditional sense. So I wondered if you had any particular bizarre or memorable moments from any of your live improv shows. That's a great question. Um, we did a show two days ago, you couldn't be there, Mark. Exactly. I, I couldn't, alas. Um, where we were reaching our time limit, we were booked for 15 minutes, and we were about 14 and a half. And although most of the story was wrapped up, we were about to end the show, I realised my character... His story had just ended with him <laughs> sad and alone. So there wasn't really time to wrap it up. So I grabbed my guitar, which we've been dabbling in musical improv a little bit, and sang a song about Where's My Happy Ending, <laughs> which uh, went down quite well. <laughs> I like it. Stealing the show at the last. <laughs> now it's time to fast forward to our first science section of the show. And that's an appropriate activity, because today we're looking at the possibility of time travel in physics. And specifically, we're going to take a look at the paradox of the time traveller, which is one of the areas covered in Jim's excellent books, Paradox, The Nine Greatest Enigmas in Physics. So, as per your book, Jim, the premise of this paradox is a scientist finds an instruction manual to build a time machine. The scientist finds an accompanying note with the instructions, written by a future version of the scientist, telling him he must build the time machine. The scientist then builds the said time machine. At a future point, he travels back uh, for the younger version of himself to find the instructions... And presumably, in between then, he fulfills absolutely all of his life dreams ever. Now, I guess the paradox here is uh, effectively comprised of three interesting components. Uh, the first one would be, is the future predetermined in this scenario? 
How were the instructions ever created in the first place if the time traveller is in an ongoing cycle of found, used and returned? And finally, where did the raw materials for the instructions come from, um, as well as the energy used to power the time machine? Because, um, as perhaps you can explain, Jim, in physics, you can't get something from nothing. Mm. Well, firstly, phrased like that, you can tell this is the definition of a paradox. It's mm. nonsensical. It, it just sort of goes in a loop like a snake eating yes. its tail. Um, so to deal with the, the, the three points, first of all, uh, what was the first one? The first one is that the... The future is the future. That, that's, that's very interesting because Einstein's theory of relativity tells us that all times coexist. If you could step out of time, you would see, just as you could see all of space, you'd see time as the fourth axis, the fourth dimension we talk about. Uh, and so although we imagine, you know, we remember the past and we predict or look forward to the future and the present moment sort of drifts along the time axis, that's only because we're stuck inside the universe. Einstein said you could imagine a perspective outside of space and time where all times coexist, which means the future is there, already mapped out, ready for us, preordained, predetermined, fate, or whatever you like to call it, and the past still coexists. If that's the case, then yes, time travel in that sense, why not? You can, you know, the, the future's there, you can travel to the future, people from the future can travel back to the past. But it's a useful tool. In, in, in physics, but many physicists, or most physicists, I say, would, would, would guess that the future may be predetermined in the sense that what we do now is going to, you know, one thing leads to another, but the future doesn't actually exist. But you need it for time travel. But it's interesting that um, Einstein's theories do actually allow, theoretically, for the possibility of time travel, which is perhaps something that most people don't necessarily Absolutely. Realize. Well, first thing to say is there are two theories of relativity. Mm. There was the special theory of relativity, that's the E equals MC squared one, that if you travel close to the speed of light, your time can slow down. Um, then there's the general theory mm. of relativity, which is Einstein's theory of gravity, so space-time is curved. That's the one that leads to black holes and the Big Bang and so on. These two theories tell us that you should be able to travel to the future if you could slow your time down. And there's no problems at all with that. In fact, we know that happens. Particles that travel close to the speed of light, their time slows down. And we know this. The difficulty, of course, is if you could travel to the future, could you come back to your own time again if you don't like what you see? And that requires time travel to the past. Now, Einstein's general theory of relativity, our best theory of the nature of time that we have at the moment, at the moment, I should say, I mean, we might come up with something cleverer, tells us that time travel to the past should also be possible. Now, the reason most scientists are quite dubious about this is because paradoxes like this, like right. the grandfather paradox, they say, well, what if the, you know, where did the raw uh, materials for the time machine come from? Where did the instructions come from? Who first thought of the idea of the time machine? If the, if the time traveling scientists finds the instructions yeah. in the time machine, keeps them, travels forward in time, puts them back in the time machine to send it back to his younger self, then those instructions, that information, is caught in a loop. You know, never mind energy. The information itself is... No one ever created those instructions. So, clearly that's nonsense. Mm. Therefore, surely time travel is impossible. Now, one of the interesting theoretical possibilities of time travel that you allude to in the book uh, is the idea of a multiverse. Now, I found this very interesting, but I wondered, perhaps you could um, briefly explain to us, Jim, the theoretical concept of a multiverse. Yeah, there are, there are many areas of physics 
which would benefit from the idea that our universe, our reality, isn't the only one, that there are parallel realities running alongside ours. Uh, for example, in, in quantum physics, the, the theory of the, the very small, the subatomic world, that's notoriously, famously counterintuitive and yep. weird. If there were parallel realities, you know, like the Schrodinger's cat being dead and alive in the box at the same time, yes. if, there are, if there's a multiverse, then the cat is dead in one universe and alive in the other. So when you open the box, all that's happening is that you're in the alive, say, universe, and, and there's another you opening up the box to find a dead cat. So it solves quantum mechanics problems. The multiverse idea also solves how our universe happens to be so finely tuned to allow us to exist. How come the, the, the gravity is just the right strength for stars and planets to form? How come all the elements are the way they are? Well, if there are an infinite number of universes in a higher dimensional multiverse, we just happen to be in the right universe for us. We're the lottery ticket winners. But what I like about the multiverse idea is that it also rules out this um, time travel paradox. It, it, it solves the problem. Because all that happens there is that there are, there's a time-travelling scientist in the future in one universe who, in sending the instructions back through the time machine, sends it to a parallel universe. So our scientists in our universe that finds the, 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 the instructions of the time machine will never become that precise time-traveller who wrote the instructions in the first place. And so the paradox is, is resolved. But who knows? We've got no evidence that parallel universes really do exist. I have to say, I do like the concept that there is a parallel universe right now where Donald Trump is not running for president and Brexit is actually just a bad-tasting story. Oh, don't make me <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but no such luck. We exist in, uh, to, to our knowledge, we exist in only the, the universe we find ourselves. But um, I suppose perhaps listeners might be interested to know, and I don't know if this is something you can resolve, and it's unlikely, but I'll ask it anyway. How would we access a multiverse? Well, one idea is through a wormhole. Hmm. So the, Einstein's theory of relativity says that space-time can be curved in all sorts of shapes. Now, if there are other universes, uh, like bubbles floating in, in a higher-dimensional space, they might be joined by these umbilical hmm. cords, these wormholes. That, so you jump into a black hole... You may not get squashed to zero size. I wouldn't recommend it because, because it might turn out that you do get squashed. But it may be that a black hole is a portal, yeah. um, a stargate. Oh, it could be a portal to another part of our own universe or it could, in principle, the mathematics says it's possible that it could be a, a, a gateway through to a parallel universe. But it's, this is just maths. The nice thing is it doesn't violate any of Einstein's really? equations. So it, it, it's, a, it's a theoretical possibility. Uh, and that's enough for me. Amazing. The unknown unknowns. There you go. Good old Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> Can I ask a question about the multiverse? Mm. I don't normally tip in at this part of the show, but I've got a question. Please go ahead. So, what would make the two, say there's two parallel universes, what, what would make them different? So if in one I reach a fork in a road and I turn left and the other I turn right, what's the difference that makes me make the other decision? Well, in quantum mechanics, uh, the idea is that whenever anything, you or even a tiny particle, is faced with a, a choice mm -hmm. to go left or right, we say in quantum mechanics it sort of goes both ways at once. Okay. The particle is in two places at the same time until you make a measurement. Well, mm -hmm. You observe where it is and you see it's gone left, not right, and, and then say, OK, well, it never went right. But until you looked, it was in both places. Mm -hmm. The cat was both dead yeah. and alive. In the multiverse idea... The moment you make that decision to look to see where the particle is or decide mm -hmm. to go left or right, or to scratch your nose or not scratch your nose, 
that's the moment when your universe becomes two. Ah, okay. So in one reality, something happens. In the other universe, something else happens. But you think you've made a choice, but the other you has made the, the alternative choice. Cool, okay. <laughs> so we've talked about paradoxes in the sense of physics. I was wondering, Radu, if there's an equivalent in electronics in any shape or form. Okay, so um, perhaps let's link it to um, quantum physics. Mm. Because um, paradoxes would be quite bad on, on, on the human scale, I suppose, when you're trying to sell smartphones and things. Yes. Uh, but at the same time, we have uh, unintuitive situations happening a lot in semiconductors. And in fact, they are the bedrock and the very principle for why our electronics actually work. Um, it's all to do with electrons and their propensity to be weird particles. Um, interesting, I'll give you a single example really. Uh, about 10 years ago the whole um, semiconductor industry was in trouble because what was happening was that insulators were made so thin that electrons could tunnel through. So that meant that our computer processors were drawing electricity even in their rest state while not switching. So they were practically off, as in turned on but not doing the work, and there was just this leakage of energy through an insulator, which should normally not happen. But quantum tunneling happens in insulators that are very, very thin, nanometers across. And that means that an electron which is supposed to stay on, a, on the right side of, a, of an insulator can go across with some sort of probability. And the smaller this, this gap is, the bigger the probability that the electron can go on the other side is. So it's a very real problem, which we've solved in a very clever engineered way, which is for another time. Amazing. Well, we will actually come on to quantum later in the podcast. Well, that brings us to the end of the first science section, and it's time to play our first improv game, which today is Director's Cut. In this game, I will play the director, and my stars, Johnny, Radu and Jim, who frankly make the cast of Back to the Future look amateur, will act out an improvised scene for me. When I call cut, however, I will ask our superstar actors to replay the scene but with some extra changes requested by me, the director. So, as we've been talking about time travel, I'd like that to be the theme of the first scene, um, but to give it some initial grounding, let's have it set in a shop. So, an improvised scene inspired by time travel set in a shop. Take it away, Radu, Jim and Johnny. OK, uh, hi there, sir. Uh, I'm hoping to buy a flux capacitor. Hello. Yeah, um, what sort of size do you have in mind? Um, medium's fine. Medium, as in what sort of flux microfarads, flux nanofarads? Um, you know, what, what would you recommend? Um, it depends really. What, what are you going to be using it for? Um, time travel. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. Um, I say a few hundred micro flux farads would be okay. Excuse me, Simon, can I just step in here? I, I'm the manager oh, of hi, the okay. store. Um, now, Simon's quite right to offer you the different alternative flux capacitors, but I have to warn you, sir, that there is uh, a certain risk involved in building time machines with flux capacitors. Do you, for instance, have a very fast sports car? Uh, it's not that fast. Ah. ah, you see, there's your problem. Simon, unfortunately, has only been here for a week. Okay. He doesn't quite understand the risks involved. We really have to suggest that you buy yourself a car that can go at least in fourth gear and, and try and break the speed limit. Right, OK. Do you have cars for sale here too? We do. What, would you, what colour would you like, sir? Uh, black would be good. Black. Simon, could you show the customer our array of black very fast cars? Excuse me, I've, I've got a complaint. I bought a car here last week from Simon, 
and my car only reached 87 miles an hour, which wasn't quite fast enough to hit the need, the, the requisite speed to use the flux capacitor, thus making the use of it redundant. Simon, I think uh, we should maybe uh, refund yeah. this gentleman's that, that money. That was the 56 Chevy truck. Ah! Uh-huh. Told me it was a DeLorean. Yeah, uh, uh, it was the body kit for a DeLorean. It kind of was specified on page three. Sorry, sir, I think you probably... If you had specified quite clearly that you needed to go at a particular speed, we would have made sure you had the DeLorean. Uh, do you have the receipt? I, uh, oh, I left it in 1983. Ah, <laughs> uh, I see. See, Simon, there's a lesson for you. Here's a customer trying to do a pull-a-fast one. Clearly, he's just let out the bag that his car did, in fact, take him back in time. Uh, thank you, sir. Well, Damn I'm afraid you. we Damn can't. you, guys. And see. <laughs> okay, well, that was good. And as the director of that piece, I was, uh, I was content with it. You know, you, you got, you got the, the scene moving. But there's definitely some improvements we can make. So um, I would like to see your character, Jim, be a bit more like Brian Cox. I think that would be a really extra bonus to the scene. Um... And I'd also like to see there be more of a reality TV theme to the scene. So I'd like to see the scene inspired by Big Brother. Okay. Um, so let's start the scene with, uh, with those additions, okay? So let's go. Dear it in the Big Brother house, or maybe it's Dear Six, some of the housemates are considering whether to purchase a new flux capacitator. Hi, uh, yeah... Yeah, I'd quite like to buy a flux capacitor. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it's your choice, I guess. He said to me it was my choice. I mean, yeah, it is. I guess that's a good thing to say. Flux capacitor? Are you kidding me? What are we? What, what sort of shop does he think we are? So anyway, I said to him, can I buy one? You all right? Simon, can I just stop you there? Flux capacitors are beautiful things. Yeah. They can make you travel back in time to see the whole universe. It's great. (laughs) Okay, cool. What an interesting man. Very cool hair. (laughs) Oh, sorry, Brian. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, anyone from Lancashire or anyone north of Watford. (laughs) Excuse me, uh, did you say it was Brian? Yes. Could you just stop talking about gravity for just two seconds? I've got a complaint, all right? All right? Good. This boy, Simon, sold me a flux capacitor when I was doing my video diary in the Big Brother house. But it doesn't work. I can't hit the requisite speed to use it. And you were an expert in the professorship of physics and whatnot, so you, Brian, are going to sort it out for me. I'm here in Timbuktu, and it's really beautiful, and the gravity <laughs> works... No, I, I'm sorry. I'm here in Antarctic. That, that's... Irish. <laughs> right, what the hell's wrong with you? I mean, I've only been in the shop two minutes, so I can clearly see you've travelled all over the place. I'm glad someone's flux capacitator works properly, but c- can you talk some sense into this, man? Yeah, what are you doing? It's a second law of thermodynamics. What? I just want to buy a flux capacitor here. <laughs> so this guy comes in, abusing Brian, talking to the other customer... And we'd never know what we are for sure. He claimed to be the manager, but he didn't seem to know what he's talking about. This sucks. I'm going back to the diary room to go back to 1983. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> See. 
Wow. I mean, that was incredible. And um, I think uh, my Brian Cox impersonation was flawless. It was it was on point. Yeah, thank you. Um, and obviously, if we develop a multiverse, you can go back and do it as many times as you want to. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's now time for our science sec- section number two, which looks at quantum biology, uh, which would be fair to say is a relatively new area of science research and the focus of Jim's book, Life on the Edge. Jim, before we go any further, and we've touched on it already, um, could you explain what we mean by the term quantum? Quantum, well, it, quantum theory in physics developed in the early 20th century, right? actually around about 1900. Max Planck, German physicist, uh, was trying to understand uh, the nature of heat radiation from warm objects. Uh, and he said that the, the radiation comes out in lumps, in tiny, indivisible packets. So it's not like a continuous stream of water. It's more like a dripping tap. And he called these little lumps of energy quanta. Um, other scientists, like Einstein, developed it further. By the 1920s, it was realised that this idea applied to the whole microscopic world, the world way smaller than our senses. So the, the nano world and below, world of atoms and particles that make up atoms. Uh, and a whole new mathematics was developed, and it was called quantum mechanics to distinguish it from what we now refer to as Newtonian mechanics, which is the, the laws of motion and the equations that we learn at school about um, pendulum swinging, balls dropping, cannons firing, and yeah. so on. Um, in, in the subatomic world, things are very different. And gradually there was this realisation, mainly through by the mid-20s, that uh, particles down at the very tiniest scale can behave like spread out waves, everything's fuzzy, subject to the laws of probability and chance. There was m- much more than just tiny lumps of energy. Uh, and to this day, quantum mechanics, I mean, Radu work, working electronic, working uh, semiconductors, will verify that we would not have most of the technology that we use today were it not for our understanding of the quantum world. And yet, at its heart, it's very, very counterintuitive. Physicists and chemists who use quantum mechanics and and electronic engineers have just had to come to terms with its strange predictions because it works. It does seem a bit like, as an outside observer, that there's a dichotomy between what's very theoretical and and lucid and difficult to place, but yet it's so fundamental to modern electronics, Radu. I think that was quite an important point there because um, it's... I forgot completely what I wanted to say, uh, which might be <laughs> quantum biology in action. Um, but the thing is, um, the, the physics is so unintuitive mm. that if you are to actually make the refined devices that we're making these days, you can't just guess or stumble upon it. You really need to understand um, you know, the theory and what it's predicting to be able to make these devices. It's not as if you're making something and you said, yeah, I'm just going to make this, but smaller. Because it simply doesn't work. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a, a fundamental concept of quite literally everything that we're doing these days. Because electronics, as we know, is at the basis of pretty much everything that moves in this world now. And it seems that the use of quantum, or the, our understanding of it, is growing. And one of the main examples you cite in the book, Jim, is the humble European robin. Um, but it turns out that what many people might regard as your average garden bird has some pretty special hidden secrets. Yes, this is quite, I won't say quite new, in the last ten years or so it's been realised that these weird quantum effects aren't constrained just to the world of, of atoms or semiconductor devices. Even within living cells in, 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 in biological systems, quantum effects play a role. The European robin has become almost the poster child of this new field of quantum biology. Uh, it migrates every year from northern Europe down to the Mediterranean, 
uh, and it navigates, it finds its way with unerring accuracy every year. Now we know that lots of migratory birds, insects and, and marine life uh, follow certain uh, signals, you know, whether they memorise the, the, the night sky or, or the landscape. The European robin senses the direction of the Earth's magnetic field. So it has some sort of built-in chemical compass, and this was known since the 1970s. The puzzle was how does this compass work? And the current theory is it works because of something called quantum entanglement, and a notion so weird that even Einstein called it spooky. Yeah. He, didn't, he didn't like it. And yet it, it appears as though two quantum entangled electrons, two particles that, although separate, still know of each other's existence, that sit on different parts of a protein molecule inside the bird's eye, and that the way these two electrons dance around each other is very sensitive to the orientation of the bird in the Earth's magnetic field. The Earth has a very weak magnetic field, but you know it's there because you, you, that's how compasses work. Well, this inner compass in the bird's eye helps it find, find its way. It's very, very surprising. It must be a fantastic ability to have, and I suppose I'm just trying to picture it. Is this something that's innate within the robin that it senses, or does this sort of form the basis of a chemical reaction that allows the robin to somehow see where it's navigating to? Almost like a superhero power. It is. I think that's that's the idea. Of course, no one can go and ask a robin mm. what is what exactly do you see. But the you may come on to that in the <laughs> yeah, game. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> the the notion is that um, uh, the way these two electrons behave will trigger certain chemical reactions. Something called a fast triplet reaction chemists may be familiar with it, um, and, and that will send different signals to the bird's brain depending on which direction it's pointing. But we can only guess at what the bird is seeing. It may be there may be some sort of a, a, a marker on its field of vision that, that tells it whether it's pointing the right way or not. Amazing. And how extensive do you think this uh, application of quantum biology is to, to other species within nature? Well, we know there are many other species that also navigate by having a sensitivity to the Earth's magnetic field. Um, uh, uh, the monarch butterfly, for example, that flies from Canada, yes. um, eastern Canada, down, down to Mexico every yeah. year, they seem to be sensitive. People talk about other kinds of birds, homing pigeons... Uh, they may use it as well. Yeah, yeah, and some and marine animals as well. You know, I mean, there, there are all sorts of magic, almost magical tricks and sixth senses with, with the way um, animals are able to find their direction when they migrate. But this is by far the weirdest. And I guess as a quantum physicist, it must be very exciting to find almost a, a new application of your area of research in a, in a new field. It, it is. I mean, I have to say, it's still a speculative field, and the idea of the European robin and quantum entanglement in its eye is not universally accepted. Mm -hmm. There are other examples where uh, things are a bit clearer. So in photosynthesis in plants, the way they turn sunlight into right. chemical energy looks like it utilises some of the tricks of the quantum world. The way enzymes work inside our living cells, the way they uh, speed up chemical reactions in cells seems to be helped by quantum mechanics. But, uh, you know, there's still scepticism. Mm. Physicists don't like delving into the messy world of biology. It's too complicated. <laughs> Biologists don't know quantum mechanics, and they don't want to learn it. And they think, well, look, we've come this far with genetics and molecular biology without quantum mechanics. Thank you very much. Keep that in your physics labs. Um, so it's only a small band of, 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 of scientists that are coming together. So here at Surrey, I, I work with John Joe McFadden, who's another he's professor of molecular genetics here, um, uh, that are sort of... <laughs> I say brave enough, foolish enough to move into this new area. But that's what makes it so exciting. Yeah. Well, if you don't have pioneers, you'll never discover anything. There you go.
Well, the European Robin may be able to detect which direction it needs to travel in, but I can always detect when it's time for another improv game. And that time is now, as we move into our next game called Movie Interview. Now, Jim is no stranger to being in front of the camera, but in this game, Jim will be playing the character of a successful movie director, telling us about his critically acclaimed new fictional movie, Quantum Biology. I will be interviewing Jim, and Radu and Johnny will be acting out scenes from the, uh, the fictitious movie. Now, to make things more interesting, I want to embellish Jim's movie director character, Radu, you are laughing next to me here, with some character traits. So, Jim, <laughs> I'd like you to play the part of a stereotypical arty director who thinks very highly of his own film work, has a French accent, and goes by the name of Monsieur Le Physique. So, I think that's enough introduction. Uh, so let's begin the game, Movie Interview. <clears throat> well, Monsieur Le Physique, um, thank you for being here to discuss your masterpiece, Quantum Biology, a real impressive piece of, of movie work and really stemming from um, a lot of research and creative processes which must have gone right back to your childhood, perhaps when you were in the garden working with animals and, uh, and seeing them at the bird table um, in your garden. Um, I wanted to know what inspired you particularly to put the, the lead character, um, not as a person, but as a, as a robin. Could you explain the logic behind the choice of a robin as the focal point of the movie? Well, you see, I, uh, I like working with animals, mm. uh, and I find the robin a beautiful creature Indeed. that uh, is very artistic and very beautiful uh, and likes to follow instructions very, very carefully. Uh, so when the movie, the James Bond movie, Quantum of Solace, oh, came out, mm. I felt I could take it further. Really? Yes. So Quantum, no, it's not Solace. Solace is a is, is terrible, terrible idea. Mm. But Quantum Biology is beautiful. And the Robin, I think you will find it will get many, many more movie parts in the future. Incredible, yes. Well, the Robin, as you have alluded to, has a diverse range of, of movie portfolios. I suppose the scene that really struck me was the one at the beginning of the movie, um, where the Robin becomes self-aware and enrolls on a physics with quantum technologies undergraduate course at the University of Surrey. Um, a beautiful piece of theatre, and I think we can see a clip of that now, as the Robin undertakes its first day at the university. Hi, I'm Robin. I'm coming to Europe. Hi, uh, I'm James. Nice to meet you. Uh, what are you studying? Uh, computer science. Computer science, wow, that's so, that's so cool. Um, yeah, what, what about you? What are you studying? What's computer science? Oh, uh, it's, you know, programming computers, creating software, that sort right, of thing. Alright, I, I study quantum biology. Oh, wow. What? Yeah, I've got a spot in my eye. Okay. It's from the quantum biology. <laughs> cool, I've got to say, I wasn't expecting to be sitting next to a bird on my first day. Um, like, why? You're, like, really attractive and all. Okay. Cool. Maybe I'll see you around. Hopefully. <laughs> okay. Well, that was a scene from Quantum Biology, Jim. Uh, uh, sorry, Monsieur Le Physique. Do beg your pardon for getting your name wrong there. Um, and it was harrowing to see the, the plight of the Robin, um, as it didn't fit in with its classmates. And perhaps this is the reason why the Robin becomes evil. Um, we see that it doesn't fit in with the, the broader society it finds itself in. And as you alluded to with Quantum of Solace, uh, there is an evil tinge to the Robin, which is played out in the, 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 the second half of the movie. Perhaps you could just draw us towards the reasoning for the evilness. 
Yes, you see, my Robin is uh, uh, in, at heart a psychopath. Ah. And so, of course. All, of course. So yes, well, and, and many of my characters in my other movies are all psychopaths ah, as well. Of course. So, although the Robin is very beautiful and a small creature, it is also deadly. And it, uh, in the second half of the film, it goes on a, a killing rampage across the campus of the University of Surrey, uh, which, I, which I find very powerful indictment of modern society. Well... We can now see a scene from that uh, section of the movie played out for us uh, here. Uh, just finishing my assignment here in the library. What a lovely afternoon with nothing disturbing me. <laughs> hi, Johnny, it's Robin. Oh, hi, Robin. How How's you? it going? Okay, just finishing my assignment. All right, I'm, I'm turning evil. Excuse me? I- I'm just turning evil. I've, I've watched the news and they seem to be doing a lot of this rampaging thing where I come from. Right. And um, I'm just turning evil. So do you want to turn evil with me? Uh, I've, got, no, I've got to be honest, no. Uh, Are you like, busy or something? I've got this assignment, but also I think I'm just a nice guy. No, I mean, yeah, you're a nice guy and all, but I mean, evil's better. If I don't, if I don't become evil with you... What are you going to do? Um, I put this thing in your eye. Uh, what, what kind of thing? It's a magnetic thing, like with entanglement you're, and such. You're scaring me, Robin. It's like freaking evil. Okay, okay, I'll join with you. I'll be evil too. All right, let's go and be evil. Okay, cool. Beautiful piece of acting there from Robin and Helene. Um I suppose what's unprecedented in the relationship between Robin and Helene is... The conclusion of their relationship uh, turns from turmoil to love in an unprecedented twist, uh, characteristic of all of your movies, Monsieur Le Physique. Um, why do you decide that the reconciliation between their love uh, is achievable through the means of quantum entanglement? This is a very profound notion and something I haven't anticipated before the movie, but certainly becomes clear as the movie reaches its conclusion. This is what I hope, that the audience will be surprised mm. by the complete turnaround of the... Of the of I mean, the, of it was fascinating to see. So you see, the essence of quantum entanglement is that two characters are always, always interconnected. Entangled one, in love and entangled in science. If one becomes evil, the other has to also be evil. <clears throat> but in quantum physique, when you observe the Robin, it becomes beautiful and, and good again. Of course. And suddenly, this is, this is what I hope, my dream for the whole of society, mm. that we become entangled in love. Wow, a beautiful notion. And that does conclude the movie, which we can now see that concluding scene for us played out right here. You know, Robin, um, when I first met you, I didn't like you. I didn't want to become evil. But now that I joined forces with you and we killed every other living thing on the planet... I think I think I've I think I'm falling in love with you, Robin. Must be my makeup. I've watched this YouTube video and it was like awesome. Do you like the makeup? Yeah, it's nice. I've never seen makeup on a bird before. <laughs> Lipstick on a beak is really weird looking, but it's really doing All it. Right, we're like progressive. Yeah, it's cool. And I, I've got to say, after you put that thing in my eye, I I was worried, but now I've realised that you are what I've always been looking for. Was it quantum entanglement at first sight? If you say so.
if you say so. Monsieur Le Physique, a, a beautiful and poignant end to your movie, Quantum Biology. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Well, whilst my phone goes off incessantly with calls from Hollywood to, to uh, make that movie, um, <laughs> we've just seen played out there, which was quite, quite beautiful. Um, it's time for our final section of the show, and uh, for that, we're going to play our final improv game, which is called Unexpected Script. In this game, Johnny and Jim will be acting out a scene, but Radu's character in this scene has an unexpected script and can only read lines from a page chosen at random from Jim's book, Paradox. So, Jim, please could you choose a page number from your book um, from which Radu's character will be reading? Uh, 153. I'm passing over the book now. Now, in various multiverses, all 289 options of this game would now be playing out, but we're only going to go with option uh, 153. Now, fortunately, it's not one of those pages where there's only three lines. We have got a variety of words, which is excellent. Um, now, I'm going to pick a random word from the same page number, but this time from Jim's book, Life on the Edge. So, um, what page number is that? 153. So, let me find a word on page 153 in this book. So, I'm going to go with the word wavy. So... Uh, our starting point for the scene will be the word wavy. Take it away. What's up, man? Just catching waves today, bro. Yo, surfer dude. <laughs> Should be good today. Yeah, man. Woohoo! <laughs> Got my surfboard here, gonna have some fun today, chilling on the beach with a beer. I hear there's some sharks out there, though. Better oh. be careful today. Oh, no. Oh, my God, there's one right now, man. I talk about you and the runner seeing the pole do different things at different times. Oh my god, man, it's a talking shark. <laughs> it's a philosophical shark. And guys, that, that shark there's got a pole. How is that possible? The front of the pole can go nowhere since it's blocked by the brick wall. Oh, phew. We should be safe there, man. Is it talking about not getting past the brick wall to bite us? I think so. It's weird that they've got a brick wall in the ocean these days. I don't care, as long as we can do our surfer dude stuff in peace. It is the rear of the pole that quickly expands back. Hey, guys, the shark's pulling out the pole. <laughs> that's far out. Oh, my God, dude, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. So we'll be able to cut to the chase more quickly. Oh no! It's chasing me! Quick! Back to shore! But I will spare you the further technical detail for now. Oh, oh my god, you've lost your leg there, man! Oh my god! Oh, he's crying! There oh, is this is one final thing. subtlety. Oh, I didn't oh, think no. sharks did subtlety, man. <laughs> what he's I done so far isn't subtle at all. I will not discuss this in detail. Oh, phew. Philosophical. Oh, <laughs> and see. There we go. I, didn't, I don't feel I contributed much there. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> you were far out and philosophical. And that, that's, no, no, that's, you go. that's what counts. I was busy swimming fast. That was what it was. <laughs> yeah, sorry about your leg. No, well, hey. <laughs> you know. There was some pain. Okay, well, that was an amazing game. An amazing <laughs> game. And sadly, that does bring us to the end of today's podcast. Today, we've learned about how to get along in a motorverse. Um, that if you ever need directions, it would be a safe bet to ask a European Robin, and that Brian Cox does have a flux capacitator somewhere in the Big Brother house. My thanks to our guest, Professor Jim Al-Khalili, for joining us today, whose books Paradox and Life on the Edge, The Coming Age of Quantum Biology, have helped inform today's science discussions. I'm Mark Richardson. Join us again soon for another episode of Just Enough Doctorate to Perform.